Well, thanks for that prayer care. Thanks for all of you that have told me this morning that you've prayed for me and been praying for me. I appreciate that so much. I stand in your prayers. And anyone who steps into a pulpit of any church stands in your prayers. There is an appropriate holy fear that should be here. It's not a fear of public speaking. It's fear of speaking God's word, of knowing this is an awesome task, awesome and awesome. And so we all should tremble when we come into this sanctuary. And so I appreciate how much I stand in your prayers. I also wanna let you know I'm not sick, just, uh, and I haven't been drinking whiskey or smoking cigarettes, I just, that laryngitis just wants to stay there. So uh, if I sound like I'm sick, I'm not sick, I'm fine. So just if I have to clear my voice, I apologize ahead of time, but hopefully all's gonna go well. So. As Kerr mentioned, we had some miraculous things that were happening here in our sanctuary, in our congregation, in the, our homes this last year in 2019, and all of that seemed to start happening around the time that we started going through the book of Acts together. I think it was in the fall that we started looking at Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, the second half of a two-part work written by Luke. Part one, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. And part two, the birth of the church that is recorded in Acts. You see, it was at this time that we became part of what was happening even in that first church of being under the power of the Holy Spirit of the Holy Spirit falling on us and empowering us in unique and powerful ways. People being healed, words of prophecy and knowledge being spoken, people coming to Drew, to any of the pastors, to each other and saying, God's given me a word. Praise God, praise God in this Presbyterian church that these things are happening. Praise God that God is supplying our needs, the needs of this community in ways that are beyond what we can ask or imagine. Praise God for this shared sense of God's presence here. Amen? Amen. So we promised to come back to Acts. We only got four chapters in. We have promised to take our time slow down to the speed of light, to take our time chapter by chapter in Acts. Which brings us to kind of an unusual passage to begin the whole year with, the passage about Ananias and Sapphira. Some of you may be saying, that's an unusual passage to start the year with. Well, it's where we left off. So we are being obedient to what was laid down in our timing. And so here we go. I'm actually going to start reading in Acts chapter 5, verse 1. That's on page 888 in your pew Bibles. If you would like to read along, uh, read along as I uh, read this for us. Page 888, Acts 5, beginning in verse 1. But a man named Ananias with the consent of his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead. So they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. It's one of those, thanks be to God, I think. Okay. Ananias and Sapphira, part of the New Testament that I think we wish we could avoid. Their story is uncomfortable. Their story is frightening. Their story might remind some of us of what has come to be called the Old Testament God, a God of wrath and punishment. And now that we're here in Acts, now that all these miraculous signs and wonders have been happening through the Holy Spirit, now that we're living in forgiveness and redemption ushered in by Jesus Christ, can't we just stick with this God? We like this God. You see, the problem is there aren't two gods. There isn't a before and after God. There isn't an old and a new God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is one God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. God has not changed. And interestingly enough, human nature is the same yesterday, today, and forever. At least yesterday, as far back as Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve decided to take a bite of an apple, the human nature, a sin-sick nature that is utterly dependent on the grace of God. You see, if you think this passage is about the wrath of God, you will leave today having missed the point. If you think this passage is about money, you will leave today having missed the point. This passage is not about wrath, and it has very little to do with money. This passage is fundamentally about how we conceive of God. Do we know, do we believe that God is omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful, 
Because if we do, we might live differently. Do we know that God is present when we walk in here, in this sanctuary? Are we aware of his presence? Do we know that God is present when we close a business deal at work or when we're on a first or second or third date? Are we aware that we belong to God and that he is in us? Do we know this? Because if we lived like this, our lives might look different. They might look different standing in an appropriate holy fear of God that for ages, including our time, seems to be somewhat absent from our lives most of the time. This is not a cautionary tale about financial giving. This is a cautionary tale about seeking something other than God, about sowing deceit into a community that is loved by God, and ultimately about holding our very selves back from God. So let's dig into this scripture. First, we have got to understand the context in which this passage comes to us. Now look at your Bible, whether you've got it here or whether you've pulled it up on your phone. Take a look at uh, chapter 5, verse 1, and I want you to underline or highlight the word but. The word but is the very first word in the Greek sentence, and translations of this verse are all very true, starting the sentence with the word but. It's very important that we start this sentence with the word but. But signals that something that is about to happen is different from, and maybe even opposed to, what just happened. It's like me saying I ate celery sticks for dinner, but I had ice cream for dessert. But causes us to look backward. So let's take a look back. Look immediately back to what happened right before what we read in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. Listen to what was going on prior to this incident. Acts 4. Uh, chapter 4, verse 32. Now, the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as owned land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." Now, if you're thinking that some of these words at the beginning of this paragraph sound a little familiar, you're thinking, oh, didn't we get here before? You're absolutely right. You have heard these words or similar words before in chapter 2. This repeats a lot of the language that we, was used in chapter 2 to describe the birth of the church on Pentecost Sunday. 
This church being filled with and inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is how the church started behaving. It's describing something that I can imagine, something like Genesis 1, when there was a brand new creation, the celebration of what God is doing through his word and his will, what God is making new. I see a Genesis 1 popping up all around in this new creation here in Acts 2 and 4. It's like when Israel crossed into the promised land and the Israelites took possession, tangible, holding in their hands, living in their lives, took tangible evidence of what God had been promising them for years. But signals that something wicked this way comes. It's like the serpent slithering into the garden. There is a threat crawling in to the crib of the early church, but causes us to connect and compare Ananias and Sapphira with Barnabas. And here we start to gain insight. Now, if this incident was about money or how much people were giving, if that were the point of the story, You might think that people other than just Barnabas might have been mentioned when they're talking about how all of the people were selling their lands and their houses and bringing their money in. You see, Barnabas is a unique person in Scripture, but particularly in Acts. Barnabas is believed to have been one of the 70 that was already following Jesus that was sent out two by two. There are the commentators that believe that Barnabas was part of that group. Barnabas, it is conjectured, might have known Paul when he was Saul if they were both in the school of Gamaliel. He might have come by owning this land in a way that isn't altogether right. Levites, he was a Levite, We're told when God was parceling out the land to the various tribes of the sons of of Jacob that the Levites were not given a portion of the land. So how is it that he had a portion of the land? Maybe one of the best things that he could do would be to bring that land in. God's saying, here's your off-ramp. Get rid of that guilt. Get rid of that shame. Here's how you make this righteous. All we know is that he was a sold out follower of Jesus Christ. It may be that Barnabas is mentioned here by name, not so much of what he's doing in terms of bringing proceeds of land, but in terms of who Luke knows he is becoming in this church, a missionary, Paul's equal, planting churches. So it could be, and probably is, that the amount of money that he brought has nothing to do with the fact that he is named. And if this was about money, why didn't they record the amounts of money? There are plenty of places in scripture where exact amounts of money are specified. And if this was about money, why would Peter have told Ananias that the property was his to do with whatever he and his wife pleased and that after that land was liquidated, that the proceeds were still his? You see, there was no compulsory giving in this community. 
There was no economic, political, or social mandate to do this. This was a group of people living under the inspiration of God through the Holy Spirit. That's it. Those who had something brought it into the community. And those who had nothing were able to take, not spread out equally among everybody, but according to need. And everybody did this because they wanted to. Because they felt like that's what God wanted of them. There was joy in this. Everyone was of one heart and one soul. I want you to look back at Acts 4, verse 32. The whole group of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. That, my friends, is Drew's favorite word, homothumadon. One heart, one soul. This thing that springs up in God's people when the presence of God is there, unexpected joy, laughter, giving, sharing, generosity, faithfulness, patience, gentleness. This is this homothumadon of being connected in a way that people cannot do for themselves. What we are witnessing here is not socialism at work, it is stewardship at work. To anyone on the inside of this, the essence of this, the logic, the logos of this, this is community with a capital C. It's belonging and acceptance and love all rolled up into people that are here for the same reason you are. We are loved by Jesus Christ and we love God. But if you're on the outside of this looking in, if you're of a different heart or a different soul, all of this seems a little cray-cray, right? It's like, why do these people like each other so much? You will puzzle yourself silly trying to figure out what is really going on. Like they just give stuff up. Why do they volunteer so much time? Why are they always at the church? It will not make sense and yet, if you want some of what's going on, some of the kindness, some of this generosity, some of the friendship, you might try to figure out how to get it without stopping to notice that all of this comes from and is given back to God. This exists to glorify God. And this is where we can see that Ananias and Sapphira start to go wrong. They were looking for something other than God. It seems that they wanted what Barnabas had, what, what probably all the other people who sold land and property and brought us in, they were looking perhaps for that homothumadon, that sense of belonging acceptance. Maybe they wanted social standing. Maybe they wanted reputation. Maybe they wanted accolades. Maybe they wanted to see that knowing smile on people's face as they passed by, thinking those people are thinking they are great. We don't know what was on their minds. What it seems that they wanted most in this community is to have something other than God. 
They wanted to be fully cherished without being fully known. They wanted to be thought holy without actually being holy. The appearance was important to them. Some of what they wanted may not have necessarily been bad in and of itself. And let's be honest, how many of us come to church for the first or second or umpteenth time looking for something other than God? A social network, a business connection, a romantic relationship. All of these are not bad things, they're great things. But if it's the only thing, or if it's even the main thing, you will go away disappointed because that hole in your heart cannot be filled by any of these things. If you want to be fully known and fully loved and fully cherished, you have to let yourself be known by God. And you see, this is where deception comes into the picture. Ananias and Sapphira conspired together to deceive the community of faith. They talked about it ahead of time, and they agreed on their lie. They got their story straight. It's evident to us that Peter has a prophetic gift that Peter was given a divine revelation of what was transparent, uh, transpiring here, and Peter spoke out. Now, Ananias and Sapphira hadn't counted on that. You see, fundamentally, Ananias and Sapphira had conceived of God in a way that wasn't true about God. If they had realized that God is not out there, but God is in here, that God is living within the hearts of those who love him, of those who believe in him, of those who are giving as much of themselves as they can to God, they would have known that this was not going to work. You see, something had deceived them before they ever tried to deceive anyone else. Something had convinced them that they could have their cake and eat it too, that they could serve two masters. Something had convinced them that they could get away with it and that what that it was was better than what they were going to have even if they did get caught. And Peter with this divine revelation from God, puts his finger right there. In the first time the reality of Satan is mentioned outside of the Gospels, Peter asks Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. And to Sapphira, he asks, how is it that you agree together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? This is the same question asked twice. We might hear Peter's question being, how is it that you let Satan do this to you? How is it that you let your heart be Filled, filled means there's no room for anything else. How is it that your heart was filled with an idea from your enemy? Why did you take your hands off the steering wheel of your life and give it to the enemy? You have the power to resist this. 
Peter's question implies that this was not a fait accompli. Why did you let this happen? They are playing with fire, holy fire, and they didn't know it. Verse 3 of chapter 5, I want you to take a look at the word uh, that says to lie. It's an infinitive verb, to lie. The Greek for that is Susosthe, susosthe. Do you want to try saying it? Susosthe. It's an interesting word. It will make more sense to you if you write down the word pseudo, P-S-E-U-D-O, pseudo. Pseudo is a Greek word where we get the word lying and false. Our word pseudo, according to Webster's Dictionary, tells us that pseudo is used to mark something that superficially appears to be or behave like one thing, but is something else. How is it that you came into our community pretending to be one thing when you are actually something else? How could God allow this to be in this infant church? You see, the church is filled with imperfect people who make mistakes. The church is filled with imperfect people who make mistakes, and that's why we're all here. That's how we've come to realize how very imperfect we are. We can't love perfectly, we can't work perfectly, we can't give perfectly or forgive perfectly, and so we come here to be loved by God and become part of a community where we don't have to put on a show for each other, for each other. We're meant to be who we are here because God knows who we are here. God knows who you are. God knows what you think, how you act, what you say in your car when no one else is there. God knows you and God loves you. If there is any place in the world where you are welcomed to come in with your warts and your stumbling blocks, you are welcome, but you can't hold on to them. If you want that more than this community, if you want that more than God, this isn't the place where you will feel at home. You see, God commits himself to you and to us. He commits himself to working on us daily, bit by bit, into becoming a purer reflection of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, we will never achieve this side of heaven. Praise God. If we became perfect, we would not have need of a Savior, now would we? David Talley of Biola University states, Satan is intensely and intentionally opposed to what God is doing. 
And our greatest defense is not our offense, but rather our dependence. God's grace through Jesus Christ alone assures our dependence on our Savior. Depending entirely on the Lord is a hard thing to do if you're not sure you trust him. If you haven't had the lived experience of throwing all of yourself into his arms, all of yourself upon the altar, of giving up everything, of saying, God, I don't want anything but you. If you have not had that lived experience, it is hard to trust God with your whole life. Maybe once Ananias and Sapphira had talked about it and said, yes, let's do this, and they went and got the money, maybe they went, whoa, that's everything we have to live by. Wow, that's, like, we, we need to pull back part of that. We, we need to have a little something for a rainy day, a little famine. What, what's going to happen? They perhaps thought more about how to protect and depend on themselves You see, that's how we start holding something back from God. And what they're holding back is so much more than money. They are holding back their trust, holding back their inner life, holding back being fully known by God, giving dependence to something else, to money, to friends, to community, to government, to themselves. And the world can get really wonky when we depend on these things because none of these things are eternally stable, and God is. God is not keeping a ledger of how much money or time or talent you spend at this church or any church. God does not care what you give, but God wants you to give all of yourself. God wants you to obey his voice. That is how he gives life to you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, there is no faith without obedience and no obedience without faith. God wants to give you life. God loves the church. God will protect the church, purify it. He is going to present the church as a holy and spotless bride to Jesus Christ. God cares about every jot and tittle of what goes on in all y'all's life, in my life. So, what are you holding back from God today? Is there any part of your life that you have labeled mine? not God's? What are you unwilling to lay down at the altar? What don't you want to put in God's hands? Are you looking for something other than God here? Maybe these are questions you have never asked yourselves. Maybe these are questions you don't want to ask yourselves. And yet, when we realize that we live in utter dependence on God's grace, we can become like David, a man after God's own heart, a man who was not afraid to pray what is recorded in Psalm 139. David prayed, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. 
See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May this be our prayer, a life-giving prayer. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we thank you that you remind us that you are good, but you are not safe, that you are pure and merciful and righteous. We thank you that we live by your word alone. And so God, we ask that you would help us pray this prayer to be searched, to be convicted, to be transformed, to not be afraid. Lord, search us and know us. We pray this and look forward to the transformation that comes through you in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.